There have been many trials proving surgical intervention does indeed reduce the risk of progressive glaucoma damage for our patients. These include treatment versus no treatment studies, as well as studies that compare different types of treatment. In this episode, I talked with Steve Getty from the University of Miami's Baskin Palmer Eye Institute about lessons learned from these clinical trials. We begin by discussing the importance of randomized clinical trials as the highest evidence-based medicine to compare treatments. Studies that we discuss include the fluorouracil filtering study group, tube versus TRAB or TVT, primary tube versus TRAB or PTVT, Ahmed Barvelt comparison, ABC, and the Ahmed versus Barvelt study. Some of the concepts and lessons learned include reducing IOP prior to surgery to lessen the risk of choroidal hemorrhage from a sudden IOP drop, trabeculectomy offering titratable control that MIGS procedures do not, that it's harder to get a 20% reduction in IOP to count as a success if the IOP is lower than 25 pre-op, that Ahmed valves have better safety record but Barvelt better pressure lowering, and that anti-metabolites have been shown to not be effective for tube shunt surgery. There's quite a bit of information packed into this episode, so I suggest checking the program notes for links to some relevant articles and presentations related to the topic. I'm Rob Schertzer, a Vancouver, Canada-based glaucoma specialist, podcaster, and health IT expert, and we're talking about glaucoma. Steve Getty, welcome to the show. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thanks. So, uh, one, you know, it used to be that we had no proof that treating glaucoma did anything. <laughs> then uh, suddenly we started to get clinical trials, which have been able to guide us over the years. Yeah. But it's actually starting to get confusing. There's so many different clinical trials. So I was wondering if we could just sort of run through the different trials that you can think of off the top of your head and, and uh, what we should be looking for. You're, uh, you're exactly right. I think um, it was an Eddie and Billings report that came out. Um, and I forget to what governmental um, uh, kind of commission this report was directed, but it suggested there was no high level of evidence that uh, treatment uh, for glaucoma was beneficial. And I think it, you're right, that was a stimulus that mobilized a number of randomized clinical trials, um, including uh, the collaborative normal tension glaucoma study, the Acura hypertension treatment study, the early manifest glaucoma trial, the collaborative initial glaucoma treatment study, and then there were a number of other ones. Um, I just gave a lecture at uh, the American Glaucoma Society kind of addressing glaucoma surgical trials. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about some of those. Um, and um, I agree with you, it's, it's oftentimes hard to take information from a randomized clinical tri trial and extract lessons that you can, or information that you can translate into the care of your patients. So, um, and, and then it gets even more challenging when uh, two or three years later, the three-year data comes out. <laughs> yeah, it turns yeah. out what you were doing was wrong. And did that make, does that undo everything you just did? <laughs> so. Good point. Good point. 
So, you know, uh, randomized clinical trials have felt to be the highest level of evidence-based medicine, um, at least to compare treatments, um, because the goal of uh, a randomized clinical trial is to kind of create two balanced treatment groups that differ only with respect to the treatment they're get getting, uh, and that's what the randomization process is, is supposed to do, and usually successful. But right. this was a landmark trial that really ushered in the modern era of antifibrotics as adjuncts to filtering surgery. Um, so it enrolled patients that had uh, prior ocular surgery, either cataract surgery or failed filtering surgery, and randomized them at the time to just standard trabeculectomy, or trabeculectomy with subconjunctival injections of 5-FU. And it was really a quite high dosage of 5-FU. It was twice daily dosage uh, of subconjunctival 5-FU for a week, followed by daily dosage uh, for an additional week. Uh, but that study showed that uh, the rate of surgical success of trabeculectomy using kind of predetermined success and failure criteria was significantly higher when 5-FU was used in this kind of higher risk group for filtration failure. Um, you know, demonstrating definitely the benefit of antifibrotics as adjuncts to trabeculectomy to improve surgical success rates. Unfortunately, it also was shown to increase the risk of complications, and some of the complications included kind of corneal epithelial toxicity. And again, this was a pretty high dosage of 5-FU. Um, so there were a lot of uh, non-healing corneal epithelial defects. Um, but there were also higher rates of wound leaks and bleb leaks. Um, uh, so 5-FU, and I think uh, a lot of these results have been extrapolated to mitomycin C, which uh, is the antifibrotic agent that we now routinely use. Right. I just a step back a bit. I remember soon after the 5FU study group report came out, I was a resident, mm -hmm. probably around the same, mm -hmm. same age. So I remember that me as a young, keen, future glaucoma uh, person, I got to be the one giving all these injections to these yeah. patients yeah. for two weeks, including weekends, and following the yeah. patients having to patch them when their corneas sloughed off. Yeah, yeah. I think we still use 5-FU occasionally. I don't know if you, you do. I, you know, it's routinely mitomycin C, but kind of an elderly white patient where you still want to use an antifibrotic agent, but maybe not as potent as mitomycin C. I'll sometimes use intraoperative 5-FU um, and then give a few subconjunctival injections postoperatively, but it's nothing like twice a day for a week and, and once a day. So I still do 5-FU for bleb needling yep. yeah. patients. And for those other patients, the older patients with thinaconjunctiva, I use sort of homeopathic doses of mitomycin. So I'll just sort of dab, dab the, the sclera with the mitomycin for 30 seconds or a minute instead of three minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in talking- But that's not stuff from, from any studies. So. Yeah, well, you know, there's not a lot of evidence based guidance about dosage of mitomycin C and even di dosage of 5-FU, uh, quite honestly, and I think it is largely anecdotal. You know, it's interesting talking to Rich Parrish, who's, who was, uh, again, the principal investigator for this landmark trial, and, and he believes the most important single piece of information that came from that study was the 
recognition that having a really high preoperative intraocular pressure and having a big drop in intraocular pressure, and obviously those two things are highly correlated. The people right. that have super high pressure to begin with are the ones are the ones that have big drops in intraocular pressure. But that was highly correlated with the risk of suprachoroidal hemorrhage. And prior to that study, uh, high preoperative pressure, big drops in, in pressure postoperatively had not been previously described as a risk factor for suprachoroidal hemorrhage. And one, I think, take-home message from that study is if you can do anything to avoid you know, yeah, IV, those, some IV mannitol so IV mannitol right before surgery. Sometimes I'll start Dymox even for like a, a week or something before, not with any expectation I'm going to continue that medication long term, or it's going to be adequate to provide you know pressure reduction to negate the need for surgery. But if I can get the pressure a bit better before stepping in the operating room, just to ameliorate that risk of supracortical hemorrhage, that's beneficial. There's been a lot of discussion at this meeting about all the alternative surgical approaches, including tube shunts and newer MIGS procedures. But one, I think, underappreciated advantage of trabeculectomy is titratability. So in these situations where you have a really high, high preoperative intraocular pressure, you can purposely put in extra flap sutures, purposely leave the pressure a little bit on the high side in the early post-operative period with plans to do sequential laser suture lysis to kind of titrate down the pressure. And that helps to, you know, prevent big drops in pressure, which um, as discussed, increase the risk of suprachoroidal hemorrhage. So that's kind of translating the results of a clinical trial into, uh, into practice, I guess. Exactly. I guess we can move to other surgical ones like crab versus tube and the yeah I, I, but, um, there are a lot out there um, uh, you, tube versus trabeculectomy study and, uh, and and maybe we can even throw in primary tube versus trabeculectomy study because there are two studies that are pretty similar in design although uh, recruiting different types of patients um, both of those randomized cl clinical trials were designed to compare the safety and efficacy of tube shunt surgery and trabeculectomy with myomycin C. In the TVT study, uh, patients uh, were recruited that had prior cataract surgery or failed filtering surgery, not a dissimilar patient group than what was studied in the fluorouracil filtering surgery study. But in the PTVT study, was patients that had no prior incisional locker surgery. So it was, you know, what's the best glaucoma procedure as an initial uh, surgical treatment. So, um, you know, in both cases, uh, the 350 Beervelt implant was used to, for patients that were randomized to the tube group. And those that had a trabeculectomy did have adjunctive mitomycin C, although a lower dosage in the PTVT compared to the TVT study. I think 0.4 milligrams for two minutes in PTVT and 0.4 milligrams per milliliter for four minutes in, in TVT. And that was a consensus kind of opinion by investigators, not any right. evidence-based guidance. Exactly, that, because so. it, it could be that after three minutes you achieve maximum absorption anyways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was just uh, actually um, surveying investigators what was the optimal dosage in TVT actually 
we did a survey of the AGS membership more broadly, and that's how we came up with uh, 0.4 for two minutes for, for PTVT. But it turned out in the TVT study, um, trabeculectomy actually provided better pressure reduction in the early period after surgery for three months, but at six months and thereafter, there was no difference in mean pressures between the two groups. Um, trabeculectomy required less adjunctive medical therapy, at least initially, um, but the need for medical therapy kind of gradually increased over the course of the study in the trabeculectomy group and stayed pretty steady in the tube group. So at three years and thereafter, there was actually no difference in mean uh, number of medications. But using Kaplan-Meier survival analysis, the probability of failure was higher with trabeculectomy surgery compared to tube shunt surgery. And that was true throughout five years follow-up in, in the TVT study. In contrast, in the PTVT study, actually tube shunt surgery had a higher failure rate. And that difference was significant at one year, although after three years, there's still a higher failure rate with tube shunt surgery compared to trabeculectomy, but the difference wasn't statistically significant anymore. Um, if you looked at mean pressures, they were, they were significantly lower with trabeculectomy at all the different time points, and, as was the adjunctive use of glaucoma medication. So lower pressures with less medical therapy really suggesting a greater pressure reduction, greater efficacy uh, with trabeculectomy. In both studies, I think the complication rates were pretty comparable. You know, early postoperative compl complications actually were more common in the trabeculectomy group in both TVT and PTVT. Now, most of those complications were, you know, shallowing in the antechamber, choroidal fusions, things that just got better right. on their own. Right. Those so, are just normal things you expect going into the surgery. Kind of, kind of normal things, yeah. exactly, but not what we would call serious complications. And, and we actually define serious complications is those complications requiring a reoperation to manage the complication or and or producing loss of two or more lines of snow and visual acuity. And so those are those are more serious complications, right. I guess. And and the rate of serious complications was um, similar in the TVT study. Actually it was a little bit higher in the trabeculectomy group compared to the tube group in PTVT, that difference was significant at a year, but at three years wasn't quite statistically significant anymore. So, is, is there enough evidence from the TVT and the PTVT to guide us in terms of when to do a travel, when to do a tube? So, I think um, just overall, the TVT study would suggest, you know, based on a higher success rate of tube shunt surgery, that in eyes that have had prior ocular surgery like cataract surgery or failed trabeculectomy surgery, that tube may be a preferred option. Whereas in the PTVT, it showed that as an initial surgery, probably trabeculectomy is a, a favored approach. And I think that's pretty consistent with the conventional wisdom and current practice pattern. So I think Actually, even before the TVT published its results, there was already some shifts in practice patterns, kind of away from trabeculectomy towards tube shunt surgery. Um, but I think, um, you know, PTVT actually 
provides good support about the value of trabeculectomy as an initial glaucoma surgical procedure. So. There's still some people who would say, you know, don't blow your chance to do a trap first. Uh, mm -hmm. Save the tissue if you need, need it later. Yep, yeah. That was, that was something we thought about actually in TVT um, because one of the criteria for failure was a reoperation for glaucoma. And we wondered whether the threshold for reoperating might be higher if somebody was randomized to the tube group versus a patient randomized to the trabeculectomy group. Generally, you know, if somebody fails a trab, you're going to put in a tube. But if they fail tube shunt surgery, what are you going to do? You're talking about probably putting in a second tube or doing a cyclodestructive procedure. So one of the concern, current concerns among the investigators is there might have been a different threshold for reoperating since that uh, decision was left uh, to the investigator. So we, we did explore for what, what we call reoperation re bias. Yeah. Um, and how do you do that? Well, you can look at the intraocular pressure level just prior to glaucoma surgery. Um, and if it was, you know, much higher in the tube group compared to the trabeculectomy group, that would have suggested maybe there was a reoperation bias not to operate in tube, and that did not turn out to be the case in either TVT or PTVT. The other thing that we looked at is there were some people that failed because they didn't get a 20% reduction in pressure or their pressure was above 21 but they never had a glaucoma reoperation for whatever the reason. And those were also considered failures. And you can look at the intraocular pressures of those to that group and compare it in tubes to traps and it wasn't any different. So we felt comfortable there wasn't actually a reoperation bias for either in, in either the TVT or PTVT but study. it still wasn't harder to get the 20% reduction in patients whose pre-op pressures were already low. So that's a really great question, and um, it's something we specifically looked at. Um, and uh, so the answer is yes. And um, and it and it we kind of um, kind of tripped into this information uh, first in in PTVT, and the way we tripped into it is we did a risk factor analysis, um, looking at what were the risk factors associated with failure. Um, at a year, and it turned out there were two significant risk factors for failure. One was randomized treatment, um, and I mentioned at a year there was a significant difference between the two treatment groups, and so it turned out if you were randomized to the tube shunt group, you were at higher risk of failure. But the other significant predictor of failure was preoperative intraocular pressure, and in particular, if your pressure was lower, you were at higher risk of failure. But we found there was a treatment interaction between preoperative intraocular pressure and failure. And I think it's easier to illustrate that kind of graphically, um, kind of subdividing the population into different subgroups based on preoperative intraocular pressure. But if you do that, you'll, you'll see that the failure rate of tube shunt surgery is much higher in, among patients that have a low preoperative intraocular pressure. And as you progressively increase preoperative intraocular pressure, also progressively the rate of failure goes down. So um, 
actually among patients that have pressures above 25, there was actually a lower failure rate in the tube group than the trabeculectomy group. And among patients with pressures below 21, there was a much higher failure, failure rate in the tube group than the trabeculectomy group. Now it turned out there were kind of more patients kind of with lower levels of intraocular pressure, certainly in PTVT compared to TVT. And that might have had some kind of influenced the results actually uh, of the study. So it's interesting to look at the effect or the influence of preoperative intraocular pressure on failure rates, which seems to be important in tube shunt surgery. It was less important in the trabeculectomy arm of the study. Uh, preoperative pressure did not have as much of an impact or influence on surgical success rates and TVT. In, in terms of other uh, things that would have been considered complications, when along the course of those studies was the hypertensive phase uh, brought up? And yeah, hypertensive phase is pretty common after tube shunt surgery, and that actually can be, um, it's oftentimes called an encapsulated blood phase, and we see encapsulated blood phases after trabeculectomy as well. And um, both are treated in a similar fashion, which is just kind of reducing uh, aqueous production and try to ride through it. Um, you know, we reported the rate of encapsulated blebs for both trabeculectomy and tube shed surgery. But you and I know that's a little bit of a subjective kind of diagnosis. Um, um, and that's one of the problems actually with with TVT and PTVT or limitation is that, you know, it's hard to define certain complications. And that's, I think, that you know, one that, that's sure. definitely one of them. You know, um, I guess it's, you know, easy to define hyphema, but it's actually difficult to quantitate. So that's the other thing. So definitions and quantification of complications. So choroidal effusion can be, you know, little fluid in, in, the in the periphery that you would only see with a dilated exam, or it can be, you know, kissing choroidals that in some cases you need to intervene and actually drain them. So that was, again, why we came up with this definition of serious complications. We felt that the ones where you actually had to go back to the operating room to manage the complication, those would be more significant, um, and those that produce vision loss. As far as you know, encapsulated blebs, whether they be with traps or tubes, uh, if you could treat that medically and ride it out, um, great. If you couldn't and you had to reoperate or your pressure stayed high, that could result in, in failure uh, according right. to predetermined uh, success and failure criteria. Any other studies we should touch upon? Oh, there's lots of them, and I, there may be limitations in time, but you, you'd ask about the ABC and AVB study. These are also two studies that are probably um, easily discussed together because of similarities in design, the Ahmed-Bearveld comparison study and Ahmed versus Bearveld study. Both uh, enrolled patients that um, had refractory glaucoma and were going to have tube shunt surgery, but randomized them to an Ahmed glaucoma valve, the model FP7 or 350 Bearveld implant. Both of those studies showed that the Ahmed produced 
better pressure reduction immediately after surgery. Um, but with longer follow-up, the bear belt um, was more effective in lowering intraocular pressure with less uh, adjunctive medical therapy. Um, so efficacy data in both those studies seem to favor the bear belt implant, but the safety data in both studies seem to favor the Ahmed implant. Um, really interesting. And in the end, this, the data from both the studies got pooled together. Correct. At least for um, for our, uh, treatment outcome with re regards to success and failure, the complication data has not been pooled together yet, although we have that and we're actually working towards a pooled analysis of complications of ABC and ABB, but you're right, the pooled uh, survival analysis was uh, published and showed that there was a significantly higher failure rate with the Ahmed implant compared with the bare belt implant in that pooled analysis. It's hard with any of these studies to have enough in common with the study designs that you actually pooled data. Yeah, so yeah. You know, I'll, quite uh, something. The other example is OATS in the Active Hypertension Treatment Study in the European Glaucoma Prevention Study. They had kind of, they were similar enough that they could pool the results, and it really allowed one study to validate the other. And I think similarly, the ABB and ABC study showed remarkably similar results um, and allowed one study to validate the other. So it's, it's still sort of a, you might say, a draw then in terms of which implant to use. Yeah. Part of maybe what the surgeon's most comfortable with. That, I, think that's, I think that's a factor. You know, some maybe clinical applications that you could extract from that study. Um, I think in patients that have markedly elevated intraocular pressure where you need to reliably get it down immediately, I favor the Ahmed implant. Um, but people with advanced glaucoma, those that are poorly tolerant to medical therapy, I think of Bearvelt is better because of the greater pressure reduction and less need for adjunctive medical therapy. Certainly in patients where you're worried about hypotony-related complications, like uveitic glaucoma, eyes that have had prior cyclodestructive procedures, I think an Ahmed implant is a, a better implant to choose in those, those circumstances. So, so those are some of the take-home lessons from the study, I think. Now, just to go off on a tangent, what about uh, use of anti-metabolites and tube shunts? Yeah, there's actually been a couple of randomized clinical trials uh, evaluating that, uh, one by Lou Cantor and one by Vital Costa, neither of which showed any benefit of intraoperative mitomycin C um, compared with kind of BSS. Uh, and that was an intraoperative administration in the area of the end plate, trying to create a thinner capsule over the end plate, since that's the day major determinant of kind of um, final pressure is uh, because that's where the resistance occurs. Right. I even remember Peter Netlin had a study more than a decade ago as well. Mm -hmm. He compared it to a saline sponge mm -hmm. compared to an anti-metabolite sponge, and there was no difference. So there's an ongoing study right now that Ying Han is uh, running. Uh, Ying is a faculty member at UCSF, but I think the study is being conducted mainly in China, 
but it involves a intraoperative application of mitomycin C and postoperative mitomycin C injections. So it'll be interesting. I think that study is ongoing and you know we're always interested in kind of longer term data and all. So it'll be interesting to see um, if intraoperative and postoperative might be beneficial um, in improving the success of you know tube shunt surgery and hopefully not increasing the complications either. That's the consideration. You know, you certainly don't want to create problems with exposures of implants and there is potential with you know antifibrotic administration and that where there's plastic it could could potentially have some adverse effects too. It's probably also providing extra work for residents and fellows to give these injections. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Yes, that's great. Thanks, uh, thanks for talking today. Yeah, great. Thanks for the invitation. Talking about glaucoma is a podcast of indeterminate frequency and duration. It's available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and many other podcast services. Please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to it, and tell your friends about it so that it can reach more listeners and encourage me to continue to produce new episodes. Follow West Coast Glaucoma on Instagram and Talking About Glaucoma on Facebook. Drop me a line at podcast at iguy.org, that's podcast at iguy.org, with your show ideas or questions you would like to have answered on future episodes. Keep informed to prevent needless loss of vision from glaucoma. See you next time on Talking About Glaucoma.